Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall. And I'm Emma Ashford. Today on the show, we're going to talk about the American defense industry, arms sales, and U.S. foreign policy. Since taking office, Donald Trump has been a big fan of military spending. He's also been a big fan of arms sales throughout his presidency, uh, tweaking the conventional arms trade policy to emphasize economic benefits and encouraging an all-of-government approach to making the sale. Uh, the administration has already notified Congress of about $200 billion worth of uh, future arms sales, and there are billions more in the pipeline uh, for sure. And on top of this, um, or maybe I should say undergirding all of this, Trump also sees himself as a protector, the savior even, of American industry. And it's absolutely the case, I think, that the defense industry is the main beneficiary of Trump's love of both military spending and foreign arms sales. But I think serious questions remain uh, about whether this military spending and arms sales are really good for the American economy and about whether the impact of American arms sales abroad is a net positive for U.S. foreign policy. So today we're lucky to be joined by Jonathan Caverly, Associate Professor at the Naval War College and a Research Scientist in Political Science and Security Studies at MIT to talk about these issues. John, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. And if I could just start off by the quick disclaimer that the views are mine alone. They don't represent the United States Naval War College, Department of Defense, or United States government. Weasel get, words duly I noted, bet you John. get that a lot. Yep. 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 Okay. All right. With that having been said, let's um, uh, forego our usual news bits because we're recording this as part of our series uh, during the American Political Science Association meeting, so well ahead of when this is going to air. Uh, and so instead, we're going to sort of take a um, – uh, little excursion into forecasting uh, geopolitical risk. And so um, as part of that, um, you know, it's easy, John, during the, the Trump administration to get bogged down in the kind of crazy day-to-day -day circus of the news, whether it's, you know, nuking hurricanes or buying Greenland or what have you. Um, but what we want to ask you today, John, is where do you think the biggest geopolitical risk is coming from in the next couple of years? Um, wh what should we be worried about or maybe not so worried about in the next uh, few years? Well, I thought about this uh, for a while. Often I have more confidence of maybe the next 10 years or maybe 20 years because I think climate change will remain the biggest geopolitical event. And the Navy is certainly thinking about that um, either explicitly or implicitly. But in the next couple of years, from my vantage point at the War College, um, one thing we learn in political science is that uncertainty is really where you get miscalculation, where you get conflict, where you get escalation and the possibility for, uh, for war. And right now, I think the biggest geopolitical risk that I see is the lack of appreciation that the United States is still the most powerful and influential country in the system. And what I mean by that, when I talk to people in the Defense Department elsewhere, we tend to have the worst case scenario for American power and influence um, because we work in the Pentagon. So we see the mess uh, that day-to-day -day life in the Pentagon is. And let's face it, our track record in military conflicts has not been um, an undiluted success. And then we assume the best case scenario, which for the United States at some level, if you think of great power politics, is the worst case scenario, that China's all China stuff works, 
that everything China throws in the water in terms of ships is going to be fine, that uh, China knows how to operate a large-scale military operation or a diplomatic operation for that matter. Uh, the United States, whether we like it or not, has been managing a relatively successful and stable liberal system for 30 or 40 years. Um, China has not really had an experience with that. So if we think about One Belt, One Road, the idea that this will be an, an undiluted success um, really strains the imagination. And so I think the worst case scenario for the United States, and the best case scenario for China and Russia and Iran in terms of what kind of influence they can have around the world um, is really dangerous, not only because it's just a big miscalculation, but it also allows for a tremendous amount of uncertainty and possibly preemption and um, what the United States Navy uh, would call the war of first salvos, the idea that you need to strike first while the getting's good. So that's the thing that keeps me up at night. So the idea that we're effectively too pessimistic or maybe we're too pessimistic about it and it might lead us to do something that's a really bad idea. That's right. The idea of what Stephen Everett said, the closing windows, the idea that you only have a certain amount of time to intervene before things get really bad. And uh, I would say that American power is a strange thing. Um, some of it is actually fairly robust and some of it is less robust. I think another thing that we can learn from the past 20 years is that when you're not clearly the hegemon or not clearly the unipole, uh, you can't take a one-size-fits-all approach to any international topic. So in the 1990s, whether it be alliances, economics, climate change, I think the United States sort of had the same approach to each issue. Um, I think uh, a lot of my fellow academics are called neoliberalism. And now I think every issue is different. Trade is different than security, is different than climate change, is different than global pandemics. Um, it's different than air travel. And uh, I think not taking one size fit all would be really nice of the United States right now. Yeah, that's that is such an interesting topic because I'm I'm sort of reminded of of Joseph Nye's three-dimensional chessboard and the <clears throat> many faces of power here. And I think it's interesting because it's hard for me to understand how any country, the US or any other, could misunderstand the base level of power. That is military power. Like I don't. Yeah, you can you can quibble with American military outcomes at the margin, but I don't think anyone should be confused by the last thirty years about who's number one when it comes to beating people up. There's yeah. only one answer to that, and I don't think anyone is confused. I hope I hope no one is confused. But the other levels of power. That's I think you just mentioned trade, climate, you know, international cooperation of different kinds. Those areas, different kinds of power come to bear, and there I do think there has been a lot of shift. And I think China especially has seen a lot of gain in some of these economic and not, and the role of ideas or you know just providing a different framework for thinking about how the world might look down the road. And there I do think things are changing. Um, it reminds me of a quote from the movie Hitch, which is such a good movie. And, and that quote is, um, you is a very fluid concept. And and I think you know that's, that's very true right now. And I think you know, uncertainty is the, a boogeyman of world politics. And I just wonder, is it enough though for people to wonder about the sort of ideational leadership of the United States, is that enough to cause a war? I don't know. I wouldn't start a war with us or tempt us to want to get involved with something, but. I think there's something to be said for this weird idea of honor when we think about where war comes from. I mean, a tremendous number of uh, conflicts and at least competitions, if not outright wars, have been over 
some idea of who is the first among equals, who gets to set the rules. And it's not even um, being able to say, set the international system, the liberal international order. It's just being recognized as a great power. I think it's fairly explicit that is certainly one of the strategic goals of China. And it could be for domestic reasons. It could not be. Certainly, Emma, you would probably be the expert in this, a place like Russia or a place like Iran is desperate to be recognized as an important and respected player. And that drives a tremendous amount of international politics. And so that face of power, it's really hard to measure. But just because we can't measure it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Right. That's fascinating. Great. Great answer. Good answer. Good answer. All right. Excellent. All right. Let's uh, let's swivel to our, our main topic, the defense industry and the, and the arms trade. And let's start with the defense industry. Um, as I said, Trump's been pretty good to them. The 2019 budget was almost $700 billion. The proposed budget for 2020 is like $733. Um, just a number my brain can hardly even fathom. It's so big. Um, and, you know, a lot of this budget goes to procurement, the things that the defense industry builds, ships, tanks, jets, and so on. And so, um, you know, my first question to you, John, is how do you think the defense industry is doing? Is it as, as rosy as those numbers might lead you to think? Um, and maybe you have a few thoughts about important trends these days. So one of the fun things that this, about studying the defense industry, it's actually very, as you guys know, it's a very difficult thing to study. It's very complicated. It's government. It's private industry. Everything is secret. Um, there's a billion different producers that are feeding into the one big platform. Um, it's, you know, it's manufactured all over the country, all over the world. Um, so it's very hard to sort of have a theory of the defense industry or really know what's going on. But the reassuring thing is actually the big things around the world are really what drive the defense industry. So if the global economy is doing okay, which it has been since 2007, countries are going to spend more on defense. All right? And that means the defense industry, because they're such a recipient of government spending, they're going to do fine. Um, if military tension is increasing around the world, that's good for business. And I think we can safely say, looking backwards, it's been very good for the defense industry. So it's not just a United States uh, procurement. It's all a system. Um, you know, the United States uh, defense industry does not rely as much as other countries on exports, but we're still talking about 30%. So global military spending does have a lot of uh, effect on the bottom line for these uh, firms, especially because a lot of the profit is actually fixed. It's, it's already kind of um, factored into when they make they sign these long-term procurement contracts with the United States. And it's really the export sales where you get those really nice margins um, that, that help. That, that's the gravy. Exactly. Um, so I would say that, it, but if you ask the defense industry, they're never going to say they're doing well. Um, they always said um, it'd be no, no government procurement, no government contractor is going to say we need less money, we need more money. Um, but I think there are two legitimate things that they could be concerned about. And one is we may not have global economic growth uh, in, the, in the future. And that is certainly a secular trend that they have to deal with. And then the more American specific one is how we procure weapons in the United States and coming from the Navy, which has to build these 30 year projects that are very capital intensive and have to be planned long in advance. And you have to start training certain welders before the other ones retire. Um, because of this fairly erratic nature of uh, procurement and legislation and 
congressional executive relations. I think I think the United States defense industry does sometimes have a hard time figuring out what the customer wants in the long term, and that does uh, make their lives much harder. But overall, I think the defense industry is not suffering. So we're talking about this from the perspective of the defense industry, right? Yeah. And you know, I'm 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 glad Lockheed's doing well, right? You know, whatever. But is that the case for the U.S. economy? So Trump has made this argument that if these companies do well, it's good for the U.S. economy. Is that the case? Well, I think in general, it's a fairly safe first order approximation that if the United States economy is growing, so is the defense budget. I think in general, if you look at most countries, and China is a great example. If you look at most countries, actually, economic growth is a pretty good predictor of how much you're going to spend on defense the next year, because it's really just a percentage of your economy, plus or minus a little bit. Um, so I think in that sense, um, it's more of a lagging indicator of what's going on in the economy rather than a way that you can goose the economy. If there's an idea of military Keynesianism. You know, when you do have a recession, then you start spending money on defense. Um, and that, you know, what you, that's more the government spending philosophy. And depending on which party is in power, they have a different uh, preference for what flavor of money they're going to drop from the helicopter onto, onto the public. Um, I don't have much of, uh, I don't really know. I don't think there's much great data on whether it actually helps goose the economy the way Keynes says it's supposed to. Um, but in general, I think it uh, it's a it's a small part of the economy relative to other parts, of, especially of the global economy, and so it much more reflects the health of the United States economy rather than improves the health of the United States economy. It's interesting. It's a dependent variable, not an independent variable. Yeah, because I do feel like Donald Trump is very much implying the causality flows the other way. That it's you know the defense industry does well and then the economy does well as a result, rather than than the other way around. So perhaps this is a good point at which we should pivot to arms sales. Sure. Yeah. So you know to hear Trump tell the story, arms sales are going to create millions of of jobs. Um, but are arms sales? I mean, thirty percent. That's not nothing. But in terms of jobs, uh, my sense, my strong sense is that most of these arms sales deals, there's a little bit less than meets the eye uh, in terms of the impact on the American economy and jobs in particular. So I can start with a very boring statistic and then we could probably talk about maybe the weird details about defense exports and what they do for the economy. Um, it's true that these are middle-class jobs. I mean, they're manufacturing jobs, they're engineering jobs, they're white-collar jobs. Um, there are parts of the country that rely on these jobs, uh, you know, this idea of um, the rust belt is also happens to be the gun belt, according to Anne Marcuse, and this idea that it is a economy that is built around manufacturing weapons, and, and there's, there's something to that. But if you look at the Census Bureau, which is the best data I could find, the amount of, for a million dollars worth of exports, uh, or sorry, a billion dollars worth of exports um, of weapons creates about 4,000 new jobs. It's about 4,500 for just generic Exports. So I just don't think there's much difference. Like what type of export it is, exports or exports. Um, there might be there might be a sense that these might be slightly higher quality jobs. So there'll be fewer jobs, but they pay better. Um, but that's about all we can extrapolate from the data that's not provided for by the defense industry um, or the lobbying groups. Um, but when you export, one of the problems with exporting is that other countries with their own governments want to buy these weapons, right? And nobody likes giving their tax dollars to another country. And so 
generally when you buy, even when you import weapons, either you're going to, if, you, if your economy can handle it, you're going to try and get as many production and development jobs of your own from those weapons in your own country. Or if you don't, if you can't support that, if you don't have the human capital or the industrial base to do that, then you'll figure out by getting some kickbacks, we call them offsets, that will actually buy potatoes and give jobs for farmers or that kind of thing. So in general, the multiplier effect for the defense industry, because it's a government to government deal, or even if it's an American firm to a government deal, at the end of the day, your client government works like any other government and wants to create jobs at their place, not at your country. And so I suspect the multiplier for defense is much smaller. Yeah, it's it's unfortunately not particularly uh, free market economics here. We have not just one government involved uh, kind of screwing up the economics of defense because it's the only buyer and it's a weird market on this end, but you have another government doing exactly the same sort of thing on their end. And that's it's to me, it's a recipe for a certain amount of inefficiency that you just, I mean, you're never going to avoid in this business. There's no way about around it. Yeah, I mean, it's, and again, at some level, depending on what you're, kind of economic philosophy is maybe that that's offensive. But at the end of the day, these are governments looking out for their own people more than anything else, right? And so we should not be surprised. I mean, this, would be, this is a rational thing for a government to do. Absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, all right. So, you know, beyond the economic aspect, um, I would say, me personally, that uh, the foreign policy aspects are more important, uh, or at least to me, more interesting, uh, of arms sales. And... Um, uh, and a lot of folks, of course, have been engaged in this town on the question of whether the United States should continue selling weapons to Saudi Arabia because of the war in Yemen. Um, but there are actually many other interesting cases out there um, that I want to give a little bit more uh, light to. Um, so let's let's talk about a few of these if we can. Um, the first one I want to talk about is um, Taiwan. Um, the Trump administration recently approved the sale of forty, uh, sorry, sixty-six F-16s to Taiwan for roughly eight billion dollars. And in my notes here, it, it says to me that China had a cow. Um, so let's <laughs> let's talk about this. What did this do for Taiwan? What does it do for the U.S. Uh, China? Why are they so mad? Taiwan's been a problem for a long time. What's new? So I think one of the things that both the pro export arms export people and the anti arms export people really need to accept is that actually these things are not terribly important since they don't have much of an independent effect. You sell weapons to a country because they're your ally. It's very rarely that you make a country your ally because you sell them weapons. This is, a, this is the currency of international politics. And so the idea that arms exports have much of an independent effect. It, at the margins, it sure matters. In international politics, margins matter a great deal. What's going on in Taiwan, and I, I expect we'll talk about Turkey and India. Um, it, it matters, but you really have to get at the base, These this is international politics. And the United States has a very clear policy towards Taiwan, which is seldom defensive weapons, uh, enough to ostensibly make them a little more secure, even the balance between China and Taiwan. I, I'm skeptical that we are at a point where Taiwan can really do that, certainly not with F-16s, um, and but not upset China. And again, this is sort of business as usual. Um, every few years, Taiwan has to restock its inventory, has to try and you know make nice with the Americans so we can pull the chestnuts out of the fire in case of a problem. Um, but in general, I think this is 
you know, a fairly clear kabuki dance that there is, the status quo is still there. Um, you know, at the end of the day, $8 billion, not that much money when it comes to the defense industry. Um, 66 F-16s are not going to get you very far. Um, I would rather sell them defensive weapons like, you know, uh, anti-ship missiles and things like that. But Taiwan, oddly enough, is not interested in buying those. They're much more interested in buying tanks. They're much more interested in buying... And that's another thing we could talk about. Um, so in general, it's a it's what, you know, the fancy word is epiphenomenal, right? The idea is like, it's reflective of the politics. So I mean, you've done great research where you show that we ship so much security systems and weapons to failed states. But one of the reasons why we ship them to failed states is we help make them fail in the first place, right? It's a symptom of foreign policy rather than a cause. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think that I sort of I want to pick up on the bit where you said sort of we don't um, we don't make allies by selling them weapons. We sell weapons to our allies um, because I think one of the more interesting debates on arms sales that has been going on recently in this in this town particularly is the idea of we are worried that if we stop selling arms to other countries, they'll go elsewhere, or even on some of the more marginal cases like with Turkey or with India, that they're actually already looking at other suppliers. So um, in both both cases, it's the Russians selling them S-14 um, anti-missile systems. And we are saying, well, if you do that, we won't sell you something else. So that seems like even among allies, other countries are shopping around. There are some fairly prominent cases of that, but they're prominent because they're so unusual. Um, one of the weird things about American weapons, right, for all this idea that Turkey might be going away, that um, India is starting to buy Russian, and um, the United States market share continues to rise, right? It's 36%. About five years ago, it was 30%, right, of the global market, according to the uh, Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. So the reason why we fixate on these is because these are these very prominent changes. I mean, one of the best predictors of what weapon you're going to buy is what weapon you bought the last generation of fighter plane, right? Um, and so, you know, again, the margins matter. They're good signals, right? Um, sometimes countries radically do things differently. So Indonesia um, totally changed its inventory after it got tremendous pressure from the United States of, over its human rights violations. And now it has a portfolio where it chooses not to rely on any country for a lot of its weapons. I mean, its portfolio of people it buys weapons from is extraordinary. And they can't afford a military because it's actually very expensive to do that, right? And so, again, you, we do want to be careful in saying, like, um, the competition is not that competitive. Like, Russia is really struggling at the margins to sell a few extra missiles to Turkey or maybe a couple of Sukhoi. But at the end of the day, Russian market share has been declining and the United States market share is rising around the world. Yeah, it's, it's interestingly in some ways not that different from the Cold War era where you had a Soviet bloc within which arms trade happened, a Western bloc within which arms trade happened. And then you have these few independent states who took stuff from both sides, but there weren't very many of them. You know, Egypt and a couple of other places where they could play both sides. Now, today, the Western bloc is much bigger. There's a very small, relatively speaking, Russian and Chinese bloc of customers. Um, but there still aren't very many who buy from both Russia and the U.S. There's just not that many. No, and that, there's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. Um, one of that is like if you've been playing with Warsaw Pact your whole time, your whole career, like that's what you want to keep working with. Um, and it's much easier to switch from Warsaw Pact to NATO than NATO right. to, to Warsaw Pact. Well, I, see, I find the Taiwan thing curious though, because mm -hmm. I, I, why, why bother? 
Like, I'm not sure why bother because to me, it is theater, right? It's not actually going to make a difference. Taiwan will get swallowed up as soon as China decides it wants Taiwan finally. Unless it really does believe the United States is going to help, which I don't think the sale of 66 useless planes really does much to move the needle there. I don't know. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you think that is a an actual, I don't think it's a very costly signal. We just made money on it. It's not a costly signal. Unless you think putting up with a little guff from China is is a cost to the United States. I'm not I'm not sure it is. Taiwan, uh, your point about Taiwan, I don't know what they're thinking. They they want to buy all the wrong stuff. I don't think they worry nearly enough about China, frankly, there. As I far think as that's I can actually tell. a very good point. They, yeah. they just seem to not, they're whistling past the grave. I don't know what they're doing. But but they, I don't think, are really trying to pretend to fight off China. I'm, I, we're not really making a lot of money. I, I don't really see what, other than like ritual or habit, like what made that happen? They asked why, I don't know. We said, yes, I'm not sure for what real benefit other than a few bucks. So one of the funny things about free riding, because we often talk about uh, countries free riding, like Japan, NATO, Taiwan, that the idea is like, they're not going to spend money because they're counting on us to defend them. And in some ways that's a, we have a moral problem that they should defend themselves. And But if, you, if you're Taiwan, like you said, if the United States is not going to, maybe not now, but maybe a decade from now. I think the military balance is not as clear as, as you might make it out, Trevor. But like, let's say 10 years from now, when China continues to invest in, in a sort of a capability to invade or at least blockade Taiwan, and Taiwan is going to be fairly stagnant in what it buys. If the United States is not bailing you out, there's no point in defending yourself, right? So the choice is US bailing you out or not building. It's not rational to build a military at all. If you're not gonna, if your chestnuts aren't getting pulled out of the fire, so in that sense, it's sort of free riding, but in a sense, like Taiwan doesn't have much of a incentive because if they're not going to get helped, then they're just going to give in. It's a lot like NATO, frankly. It, it, it's kind of like that. So in that sense, what you're doing is you are you're trying to do this theater. You're performing. Like the United States is sending a signal that it might defend Taiwan, creates some uncertainty. Um, it's much more of a signaling mechanism. Yeah, I don't think it a, changes the military balance. It's, a, it's a, a warm cup of tea for Taiwan's nerves that they feel better if they're selling us, if the, if we're selling them things that theoretically mean we want to help them. Yeah? I think there's a genuine belief in the United States government that this actually has an impact on Chinese uh, calculations. Whether it does or not, I don't know, but it's certainly, there is a, there is a belief in that. And, you know, as a good Bayesian, you can, I guess so. you can, yeah. you know, it doesn't hurt, right? Doesn't hurt. Yeah. All and right. for $8 billion, you might, you know, you make a money off the deal too. So how bad can it be? It's all, it's all good. All right. So Emma, you, you raised the, the, the question of people buying from, from us and others. And I think that's this, let's go there next and let's talk about Turkey, India and the S-400 problem. And, you know, um, Turkey has started taking delivery of the S-400. Congress passed legislation that says um, you're out of the F-35 program, despite having been an early investor, I guess, mm -hmm. whatever you call it, co-founder, like, you know, it, in from industrial the beginning, partner. Yep. industrial partner with that program over many years and, and supposedly, um, you know, buying more than 100, I think, F-35s, Turkey, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember the exact about 100, number. Yeah. About 100, and And now India is is about to start buying the S-400, perhaps two. Um, obviously, they're not a NATO ally, so maybe it's a little less concerning. But given that the United States has tried recently to build up military and other ties with India, that you got to figure that's a problem too. So what, what do you make of this? So there's two separate problems. And so there's the proximate Turkey specific problem 
that I will acknowledge and then kind of dismiss. And then there's the one that actually unites India and, and Turkey. So the idea is the problem is the S, uh, the S35, the S-400 and the F-35 in the same uh, defense, sovereign defense network. And the idea that the S-400 has intelligence capability that can be uh, collected by our adversaries like Russia. Um, everyone I've talked to in the defense department swears up and down that this is a thing. So I am, who am I to disagree with that? Um, but it's also kind of excuse for a larger American policy that's enshrined in this uh, CATSA legislation that if you buy Russian weapons, we're going to sanction you. Right? We are actively using coercive financial tools to stop countries from buying Russian weapons. It's a Russian economic, it's a, more of a military containment or capability containment. And the bottom line is India is just more important than Turkey. Right, we want India to have a oh God. We want India to have a much more successful military than it has now, and it's just not going to get there buying American weapons for the next generation. And so, there's no. I mean, it's a very rational idea. Some countries are more important than others. Turkey is a NATO ally, but India is the one that's going to balance against China, right? And so, it it should not shock anyone that India gets different treatment. I mean, what's interesting is actually India's had to. India and Russia have had to take um, fairly costly steps to figure out how they can actually swap rupees for rubles um, outside of the American financial system. Um, so even India is feeling the pressure. Um, but in general, the United States, I think, has made it clear that if you have to buy, we'd much rather you buy weapons than not buy any weapons, and they're going to be Russian weapons. Right. So what, exactly how do you use an S-400 to, if you're Russia, to gain? Is this like having your iPhone they can track? What, what's, the, what's wrong with having a... That's not... Like, what are you really going to learn from that, do you figure? Well, so um, it depends. Technological sidetrack here, guys. Yeah, I need no, to know it's, the answer it's, to this It's question. a really interesting uh, question. Um, so I, I read a lot of people on this. One person I really enjoy reading is Michael Kaufman, who does a lot of work on Russian. He's quite skeptical that this is actually uh, uh, something you can collect intelligence on. Um, the bottom line is the S-400 uh, can use its various radars and its various databases to collect various um, aspects of the signature of the F-35 um, because the F-35 is going to be operated, because it's operated by the same military, it's going to be operated in close proximity in a predictable way so you know exactly where it is at the time. So, And all this data gets stored somewhere. And there's somewhere. some zero-day exploit that they believe the Russians have implemented that means that they can just go grab that information from India or Turkey or wherever, whenever I, they want? No, I think historically or, the United States, with good reason, even countries that are our allies like South Korea, does not believe that they have the capability of keeping this information to themselves, either through lack of the ability to do counterintelligence or the fact that maybe someone might give it to them. Um, you know, Japan is really excited to join Five Eyes, which is this uh, Anglosphere intelligence sharing network. And a lot of the justification, if you ask people, is that Japan does not have the cybersecurity or the infosec capability, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, to actually take care of this information. Um, and so, yeah, no, for modern weapons, information is power. Right. And if we're really freaking out about China uh, stealing F-35 blueprints, um, we should be worried about this as well. Horse might have left the barn already on this, in other words, but that's okay. We, we can try to keep this. I know, so, I, the, it's, it's one of the <laughs> things about modern weapons is 
Um, I think it might be easier to shoot an F-35 based on information than build an F-35 based on information. I mean, one of the fun things, like, I'm pretty sure uh, Lockheed Martin has the blueprints to the F-35, and they can't build the F-35. Like, what makes me think the Chinese can do it? You know? <laughs> okay, that's good. So, so let's talk about the F-35 just for a minute, because I, where the heck did this thing come from? I mean, and, and, and what I mean by that in, in the you know, relative to our discussion today is given how competitive the global defense industry is, how exactly did it work out that the United States and so many different countries actually agreed to work together on this? Is is the pie really big enough that everyone's getting enough, that this is a, a great idea for everyone? Is everyone benefiting equally in this deal? Or? Everyone is benefiting from this deal. I think the way I would put it is um, because of the strange economics of the global arms market or building something as complicated as an, as an aircraft, tremendous economies of scale, tremendous knowledge effects, um, this idea of the network effect, the more weapons you buy and plug into the network, the stronger each airplane becomes, um, the more knowledge you collect on the logistics system. Um, what that does, it creates an economic surplus and what the United States can do, uh, you know, if it's just a profit-seeking company like Microsoft with Word, Word is quite expensive and Microsoft collects that in pure profit because no one else wants to, everyone hates Word, but we all use it because everyone else does, right? Same thing with the F-35, except to convince these sovereign states that want, you know, they want to spend their own money someplace else, instead of the United States charging astronomical costs, because you could probably sell this plane for more money. Um, it's actually not that expensive a plane given what it does, I think. Um, you actually subsidize the purchase by your allies. So you sacrifice economic rents to get what I call security rents. So you'll get a better deal on this plane. We'll give you some subcontracting sub work. You get to be our ally. But you know what? If you bug us, we're going to flip a switch and these things are going to be giant paperweights, right? So you are joining, you are putting yourself in the hands of American foreign policy just a bit more than you were before. I ironic at a time when Trump is, you know, treating NATO so well. It just if you're a NATO, would you be happy about this decision at this point in time? Well, what's really interesting to me is like we, this is in the context of NATO, and this isn't in the context of the more sort of pernicious part about arms sales, which is the the sort of foreign military sales as a part of the aid budget, right? So the idea that that a lot of these purchases by mid level or developing states are actually sort of we give them a loan to subsidize the purchase from our defense industry, and that loan is kind of maybe meant to be paid back, but usually isn't, or is paid back. At very preferential rates. Um, but this is distinct because we're talking mostly about pretty wealthy countries. That's here. right. I mean, the vast majority of weapons that the United States sell are to very wealthy, mostly democratic countries and Middle East countries, right? Um, that's that. So again, these are very marginal things. And, and I do want to point out something that's very important and it always surprises me. Um, so foreign military sales are basically... Um, the United States buys a few extra of the same thing it was going to buy, and then it gives it to you at the same cost, right? And that's that's just good economic sense at some level. Foreign military financing is when we, the United States, takes money and gives mostly grants, sometimes loans. Trump administration actually wanted to shift more towards loans than grants um, to countries to buy these weapons. What's really interesting is the vast majority. It's a it's a fairly big chunk of money, and we should probably put in the show notes how much it is. Um, uh, Security Assistance Monitor does great work on that. But most of that money goes to a very few number of countries, and they're weird countries. Colombia, 
Egypt, Israel, right? These are not the countries you think about when you're saying, oh, you are dumping these weapons onto these developing states. These states are more or less kind of fine, right? They're pretty well-developed militaries. They know what they're doing. Um, and that's because for the most part, it's a political, it's not an economic thing. It's a political thing, and most of it's going to just a few countries. Pakistan for a while, and now Pakistan is being cut off. The Pakistani roller coaster. That's not the first time that that seesaw is sawed. It's a, it's a it's a fun thing. The more I look at it, like just Turkey, Pakistan, Indonesia, these what you said, Trevor, like these marginal countries that are sort of liminal between both sides and are desperately trying to figure out how to make it work. And it's a very uncomfortable position to be in. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, so to to bring us home, if if you were running the zoo, John, um, what, what would you change about how we manage the defense industry, sort of military spending and, and arms sales? Big question. But you know, what's what's on the hot plate of things to change? I think um, working in the Pentagon, you see so much inefficiency, um, and procurement is a mess. And at some level. If you want to build a military that's going to go to war, you have to accept a bunch of inefficiency. So let's just think of logistics. The idea of if you want a very efficient logistics system in peacetime, you have you just do what uh, UPS does or what Amazon does, just in time delivery. This really very sophisticated inventory system, right? And all that goes to hell as soon as the balloon goes up, right? And then what you need is you need redundancy. You need a lot of random extra ships out there with oil in case a few get sunk. You're trying to like, and if you're going to be prepared for war, you have to be inefficient, right? And so if we are, if we do have a grand strategy that involves great power competition, whether you agree with it or not, you actually will need an inefficient Pentagon, right? And the more you want to have a great power competition, the more inefficient and the more hairy the whole thing's going to be. And the only consolation is China is probably worse and Russia is certainly worse. Um, so that's- So that's so embrace the suck. At what I'm some hearing. level, or okay. just know that the suck is part of your foreign policy. Absolutely. If you think great power competition, this is, Trevor, Trevor and I and Emma, I think, agree a lot on our foreign policy goals, uh, whether we should do them or not. And our disagreements about arms trade is, I think the arms trade, if you change the foreign policy, then the arms trade follows, right? I think, actually, I probably think Trevor probably agrees with that too. Um, in terms of exports, that I think is different because in that sense, the United States does have a tremendous amount of power. And because of this economic surplus, it is much better at building these weapons than any other country is ever going to be, right? And I just wish the United States recognized what a gift that is and the fact that they can use it. And again, these are weapons and weapons are about politics. And if I could change one thing about the approach to American exports is to think of these as political transactions rather than economic ones. And first and foremost, first and foremost, do you want this country getting this capability? Because you're selling a weapon to a sovereign state. Right? That's the first order approximation. One of the things I tell my students when I have them is think of the first order approximations. Like we're talking about the South China Sea and the rules based order, but at the end of the day, China's more powerful. That's the first order difference. You have to accept that and then you're changing at the margins, right? Um, the same thing here. Like these are weapons. We should remember that they're weapons. And when we export them, we shouldn't be surprised that they're used as weapons, as in the Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE operation in Yemen. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, a, a bracing call for more realism, in other words, in both cases. So, you know, understand that efficiency is the price of doing business in the national security preparation for war realm. And, you know, weapon sales are political acts with economic, uh, you know, side issues, but but fundamentally political act. You said that much more gracefully than I did. Wow, Thank you. You, you, you teed it up. All right. And, and that's a good place to, to end it. Um, John, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. And thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to everyone for listening. To continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>